I don't really know how to put it, but in all my years, I know they haven't been many necessarily, but I'll say in the last decade of serving God in different ways, this has by far been the greatest year. And it is an honor and a privilege to stand before you week after week. The weeks I, I, I don't come, I miss it. I miss you. <laughs> and I'm grateful to have fellow elders and, and, and you know, deacons that, and so many of you. I mean, there's so, sometimes we forget, sometimes we take it for granted, but there is so many cogs in the wheel on, a, on just a weekly basis, just thinking about the one or two main services that make everything function in the life of a church. I was listening to a testimony of um, a couple of pastors this week who have been in ministry for 50 odd years and one of them was sharing about his experience when he started and that he literally had to do everything. He had to turn on all the lights, all the ACs, sweep, dust, every, you know, just you name it. Um, and that was just the nature of how it was. And so, you know, it, it just made me realize that sometimes it's so easy to forget. And sometimes you'll hear me say hard and challenging things, um, which I also mean, you know, to some of you who are listening in, perhaps, I, I do continue to challenge all of us who are part of this body to come out on these mornings and to fellowship together, following the pattern laid out in the New Testament for your own soul's good and for God's glory. But for so many of you who are here this morning, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for striving to be here, to be faithful, to be engaged. And to so many of you who it would be a long list to, to try and, and make, who serve every week, it means a lot. And I was reminded of the verse in um, 1 Corinthians where Paul says, what you do for Jesus Christ is not in vain. And so we are serving Him together. Let us continue to to look to Him, to grow us and to guide us as His sheep. We are all sheep of the great shepherd, those of us who covenant together in faith. And so, thank you, thank you. And without anything else said, I'd like to invite you once again to turn in God's Word to Matthew, starting in chapter 13. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find Matthew 13 on page 690, 690. While you're turning there, since my eyes went where, where they often like to go the best, let me say one last thank you. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you to my beautiful wife. Anything that I do that is good first of all is from God but second of all is because I have you by my side and so enough of that Matthew chapter 13 starting in verse 1 and I'll read through from verse 1 to verse 23 That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. 
such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many Prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask you again to do what you only can do. 
Open our eyes to see the truth of your word in a special way and show us how it applies to each of us exactly where we are today. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, at this time I plead with you again, help us to see what you are saying and how we should respond to it. For the sake of Christ, for our own good, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, again, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and last week we finished the end of chapter 12. And before I try to get into this first parable, there's at least seven or eight different parables or or spiritual lessons that Jesus teaches through the rest of chapter 13. It's important that we understand, first of all, the immediate context. As I mentioned before, uh, Matthew doesn't always put his gospel, the, the verses and chapters, together in chronological order. But this time we see Three words in the beginning of verse 1. Just three simple words that teach us that this is actually taking place on the same day of the majority of chapter 12. Look at those words. That same day. And without going too far back into chapter 12, I want to encourage you to look at the very last verse. When someone was telling Jesus while he taught in the synagogues that his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak with him. Jesus said these words, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And that was where we closed off last week, being reminded that Jesus is teaching us that there is such a thing as an eternal and heavenly and spiritual family, the family of God, that doesn't diminish or destroy our earthly family lines because we're commanded to honor our father and our mother and to care for our families, etc. But it does supersede it. It does take the place of priority in this life and the next. And Jesus closes with those words in chapter 12. And we see that as the immediate context. And then in chapter 13, we see him pushing out onto a lake. The lake being the the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And most scholars agree that basically where he pushed out onto the boat was basically a part of that lake. That was kind of a, a section of the lake that was something like a horseshoe. So that when he spoke, his voice would perfectly carry to all those in the crowds where it may not have done so if he stayed in their midst. Look again at the first few verses. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. So these verses right here tell us that the reason he got into the boat was because the people were too many. He had to get himself in a position that he could be properly heard. 
There's the immediate context, but I want us to remember what the sort of broader context is right now. As I said before, this is the height of opposition against Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, are opposing him, even to the point of making it clear that they want to kill him. They do not want him to be the Messiah that they weren't looking for. They want him to take over and to destroy Rome and to set up their kingdom now in their own way, not in the way he has come to do it. And so this opposition has been rising. And essentially what is happening when Jesus begins to use parables at this point is that Jesus has recognized that the the appointed time has come. He has had much patience with the people of the old covenant, the Jews, but they're rejecting him, rejecting him, opposing him. And so now he employs this style of teaching called a parable. And there's a a few misconceptions that I want to, at least one or two misconceptions I want to dispel about parables. The first one, which I think hopefully most of you will be happy to know, is that the fact that Jesus taught in parables is what you call descriptive as opposed to prescriptive. Whenever we read the historical accounts that took place in the Bible, there's always two things going on. It's a bit more difficult when it comes to prophetic literature. But it's either descriptive of something that took place, or it's a bit of that, plus being prescriptive, meaning it's prescribing how we should do things. So the first thing that I want you to hopefully have some comfort about is that... um, No pastor should make it their job description to stand up and preach in parables. And that would be a little bit confusing to say the least. So we need to understand what is a parable and some of the misconceptions. The second misconception is that the reason Jesus taught in parables was to make things easier. Now I've often heard this. Jesus taught in parables to make things simpler. Um, this text doesn't agree with that. Look again with me at verse 10. After this parable, notice what happens. The disciples came to him. And notice there's two groups here. The crowds and the disciples. But the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? In other words, it's obviously not that simple. There's obviously something about it that needs further explanation. But the other misconception is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. He didn't teach in parables to make it simpler. And he didn't teach in parables to make things confusing. So, as I said before, the job description of anyone who teaches and preaches the Bible is not to teach in parables. But there's also a lesson in here for us that we shouldn't make things more confusing or more simple. Those aren't the goals of teaching the Bible. Paul lays out the the goal and the job description to Timothy and he says, preach the word. 
And if things are naturally or organically hard to understand, you let that stand between God and those who hear. As Jesus says over and over through these parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I'll, I'll finish explaining some of those misconceptions in a moment. But a parable, what is a parable? A parable essentially is a simple everyday story or everyday example so that people can understand deep spiritual truths or eternal truths in a temporal, tangible way. In everyday examples. It's like a, a story that basically serves as an analogy. There's other things I could say. But that's essentially what a parable is. And he didn't make this up. Many teachers in his day had actually used this style of teaching. But he's doing it for a specific reason. So in this, in this sermon, which I'm entitling The Parables of the Kingdom, Part 1. The main point that I really want us to see today is this. Along with what is the purpose of the parable. I want us to see the meaning of this parable. And therefore what it means for us. What are some things we can take away from it. Look again with me at verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables. And Jesus replied to them, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Not figured out, but has been given to you, but not to them. So we see here that Jesus is starting to tell parables that are directly related to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven as it's usually referred to in Matthew. It's the same thing, but usually referred to as the kingdom of heaven. But notice in verse 11, that we are told the purpose for him using this style of teaching at this point. He has taught in, in the normal style of teaching as clearly as anyone could. And all he received was anger and resentment and rejection and hostility from the majority of the people. More than that, he had proven sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and received rejection. So that when they asked, that the Pharisees asked for a sign, earlier in chapter 2, or chapter 12 rather, Jesus said, you won't get a sign from me, at least not when you want it. But there is one sign that you will see that trumps all of them. And that is my death, and resurrection. That the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. That will be the sign that you need to believe. And we know that to this day, not just the majority of the Jewish nation, but the, the majority of humanity has continued to choose willingly to reject that sign. So at this appointed time, Jesus is telling us a few different things about the purpose of why he is using parables. Remember, he's focusing on the Jewish nation at this time. This is primarily who's present. So he says in verse 11, 
to his disciples that he's doing this because God is graciously even now using these parables to reveal things to them but not to others. Continuing in verse 12, whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is directly in connection to what verse 11 says is being revealed. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. Meaning these Pharisees who had the word of God, who had access, who thought they had the kingdom of God, actually did not have that. And as he says at the end of verse 12, even what they thought they had, even what he has will be taken. Meaning this access to God, especially not just in the scriptures now, but in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. There will be no further access for those who reject Christ. Even what they had would be taken away. And he continues, again, he's telling us the purpose here of these parables. This, in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. This dispels another misconception. Parables are not some kind of like hidden mystery. You ever seen the Da Vinci Code or, or something like that? Parables are not some sort of confirmation that there's these secret hidden mysteries that we can spend our life digging around in grave sites and finding out. This is not what Jesus is doing by teaching parables. Parables actually keep people who reject Christ in their willful, hardened, and blind state. And at the same time, keep those who are truly looking to God in an ever more enlightened state. The same parable does both things at the same time. Notice what he says here. He quotes from Isaiah. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Verse 14. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Verses 9 through 10 primarily. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. You see the willfulness there? Not their eyes have accidentally fallen into a closed state, but they have closed their eyes. Continues quoting Isaiah. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Maybe it'll help us if we just turn to that passage. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. These words that Matthew and, and uh, Jesus is saying here, quoting directly from Isaiah, Jesus is basically saying, this is what I'm fulfilling. It's on page 487, 487 if you're using a pew Bible. 
Isaiah chapter 6 begins with Isaiah beholding a temple vision of God. And this is how it starts. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces. This is to symbolize the holiness of God. They can't even look upon him. And these are sinless creatures. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. Even the ground is holy around God. And with two they were flying. Continually worshipping God. And And they were calling to one another, crying out these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you see what happens when you truly see God for who He is? You cry out. (laughs) Seeing yourself as you truly are before this perfect, magnificent God. Then he says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from an altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Here's the words Jesus is quoting in Matthew 13. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused or dull. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah was not expecting this as a commissioning call. And then he says this, Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But... As the terebinth and the oak leaves stumps when they are cut down. So the holy seed will be a stump. The stump. Perhaps your translations say the remnant in the land. Isaiah spent pretty much the entirety of a long ministry. With the full knowledge that his teaching and preaching the word of God was going to accomplish what it set out to do and what it was primarily doing in that nation was acting as a tool of judgment because they were rebellious against God. 
And this question that he asked for how long, really, it's, it's kind of coming to the end of its fulfillment here in Christ. So when Christ employs this text and says this is what's happening, he's basically saying, I am paralleled with Isaiah. And I am the fulfillment of this kind of ministry that he prophesied about. And in me telling these very parables, this is coming to completion. That's why he says in verse 14, before he keeps quoting, in them, or in their hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. But notice the contrast. There's all... The heart of the, the, the focus of these verses is the Word of God. That's what the sower is doing. The sower basically represents God, in particular the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in this text. And the seed represents the Word of God that has been, since the beginning of time, in a sense, scattered throughout the world for people to hear. But the question is, how are we hearing God's Word? How are people hearing God's word and most importantly how am I hearing not just how are people but how do I hear God's word that's what those soils represent the different hearts and he gets to explaining that so Jesus is saying to his disciples who have asked him this question why do you teach in parables he's telling them the purpose and then he says these words in verse 16 but Blessed, deeply joyful, happy, contented. Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you saw, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In other words, Isaiah. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. All these prophets and all these kings that had been given prophetic words about the coming king, the coming Messiah, the coming servant of the Lord, which was a title often given to the prophets. They had longed to see Christ, to have him in their midst. They would have almost killed to be standing in the shoes of these Pharisees. And so Jesus says to his disciples, you've got to understand something. People are spiritually blinded by their sin. By nature, all humanity is dead in its sin, in our sin. And we can't undo these things. But when we come to see our situation for what it is, and when we see Christ for who He is and what He has accomplished, oh, blessed are your eyes because they see. You flip back to chapter 11 of Matthew and you see these words from Jesus before He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest in verse 28. He says something else interesting, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, at that time, he said this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why? Because 
You have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. In other words, by comparison to people who would be considered not so intelligent. To say it politely. The Pharisees and many learned people, even to this day, tend to have this little pride issue. And Jesus says, praise God. I praise you, Father, that it was your gracious will. That's what verse 26 says. For such was your good pleasure or your gracious will. That God would choose, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and the weak things of this world to put to shame the strong. So that at the end of the day, when God has finished building his kingdom, all of his people and the whole human race will stand before him and say, this was all done by God. It's his wisdom. It's his power. It's his gracious will. And none of us deserve to have our eyes open. And none of us can open our own eyes. And if he chooses to open the eyes of some to be blessed, with a vision of heavenly truths, then they are blessed indeed. Blessed are your eyes, Jesus says to his disciples. Then he gives them the meaning. I started to mention that. Look at me, look at verse 18 with me again. He gives them the meaning. Again, this is another misconception we should do away with. We don't have to go on these holy trips or study all these extra books outside the Bible. When Jesus tells his parables, he also gives meaning. He's not trying to confuse anyone. And listen, the the parables, again, they're about the kingdom. They're about the gospel. When he uses this phrase, the word of the kingdom, it it says it differently in some translations, but when it says the word of the kingdom, or the message about the kingdom, He's primarily talking about all his teachings with a sort of summarization of the gospel in mind. It's not enough that a person studies the reality that there is a kingdom of God and that there may be certain signs happening before our very eyes that are unfolding that are proving this kingdom is coming. It's not enough to be able to answer someone who knocks on your door maybe on a Saturday morning about the kingdom of God. The question is not, is there a kingdom? And can we know certain things about it? But how do you get into that kingdom? Who is the king? What is his identity? And what has he said? And this is ultimately what Jesus is trying to guide his disciples to see. And through these parables... The, con- the continuing blindness of the Pharisees will not see. So he explains the meaning of these parables now in verses 18 through 23. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, that's referring to Satan and his minions. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. And again, everyone listening would have understood this. These were agricultural times. Most of you, I would venture to guess, have planted something. I know some of you might say, I have a brown thumb. 
I'm sorry. I happen to have a green thumb. And I know that if I have a small portion of, of my garden where I have plants, there's going to be one particular place that I walk on that becomes hard. Because I'll stand or kneel there and plant seeds and weed and so forth. And so Jesus is showing this picture of a farmer who has a big bag of seeds and is walking through his field and he's throwing seeds left and right. Some of those seeds fall on the path. And obviously, just like pretty much concrete, seeds can't penetrate hard ground. This is a parallel between the hard ground and a very hard heart. And he says, there's, there's some people who you can tell, no matter how many times they've heard the word, that is how they receive it. Someone may be listening to me on Facebook or maybe even sitting here this morning. You know deep in your heart, maybe listening on the radio or some other way, you know that you've heard the word a thousand times, that you've heard that there is this one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it means nothing to you. And everyone knows that. Those around you know that. This is the kind of heart that Jesus is describing in this first kind of soil. It might as well be cement. I want you to know this this morning. The question you have to deal with, friends, each of us has to deal with is this. How do I hear the word? The beautiful thing about God is that he has the power to gently, yet with extreme power and precision, break hearts of concrete and turn them into soft, fertile ground for the goodness of God, for his gospel. And that is a fact, or I wouldn't be saying these things this morning. And any of us who believe wouldn't be sitting here this morning. God has been in the business of changing hearts from the beginning of time. And he does it through this word which Jesus is referring to as the seed. Then he says this in, in verse 20. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. When he says rocky places, there he's, um, this might help for some of you. He's not really saying that there's soil that has rocks in it. There, there's no issue with that. And we don't want to... I said this to someone earlier. Parables are dangerous because you can just live in rabbit holes. But to put it simply, what he means is soil that has a, a, a high-level shelf of rock, like we would know as limestone here. There's a lot of things that I wish I could grow next to our house that I can't. Because, well, there's this high shelf of limestone. Um, and what happens is basically what he describes here. If you, if you plant something in that soil, since it has uh, no root, he only lasts a short time. And in the parable itself, Jesus talks about the sun coming out and scorching it. Because when you have this shelf of, of rock, which heats up very easily, it's useful for the plants starting to grow. But when the roots are sitting in very little soil and extreme heat, the plants wither and die. 
they can't grow well most plants at least and the kind of plants they would have been growing so Jesus says about this second soil this soil that's very shallow and they can't take root this is just describing for us a, a person who lasts for a short time as verse 21 says maybe a person and we, we, may, we may know people like this maybe you're listening again and this is you there was a short period of time in your life or someone's life where we could have sworn that person is sold out for God. That person is truly a Christian. Next minute. You don't know where they are. Or you hear that they've completely denied the faith. They have no interest in the things of God. Maybe they're completely hostile. And it's baffling. And we can't understand it. This is part of the reason Paul says to Timothy when he's talking about training up pastors who train up other pastors. Do not be hasty on, with the laying on of hands. In other words, don't quickly appoint young believers to be in positions of ministry. Because when the deceitfulness of sin and the desires of this world take root in their heart, they can be led astray. You've got to take time to test fruit. This is why some of you have asked me or shared your thoughts about things like the revival that's going on in this place called Asbury. I have no ultimate word on that. But the real proof in the pudding of anything being a genuine revival from the Spirit of God is that in six months from now, in six years from now, those who were in the midst of something like that have recommitted or become further committed to their local churches and the ultimate mission of God which is carried out through faithful little churches like us here. If you want nothing to do with the things of God on a regular basis, if you find boredom in the basic means of grace, things like reading your Bible and prayer, something's not right. And so Jesus is asking us all to personally examine our hearts here. This second one is someone who bursts up with life. But notice what he says in, in verse 21 at the end there. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word. He's not just talking about general hardships. Because of the word, he quickly falls away. The real test of our faith is when our faith is tested. And we're going to keep seeing that in special ways more and more in these islands. And he says this in verse 22. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. This is so easy to happen. It's very similar to the second soil. The first soil, the first heart, is clear. This person doesn't even spend a second pursuing the things of God. You can see that they clearly reject the gospel. The second and third soil are very similar. In the sense that it might seem like some of us are truly in the faith. But as various tests come along... 
Well, we were in the church building. We were in various ministries, but we may not have been in Christ. Or we may have been in it for the wrong reasons, if you get what I mean. And the, the cares of this world could be things that are good in and of themselves. Remember, Jesus had said in the end of chapter 12, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And he says earlier than that, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And even your own household, which starts with even your spouses, will be divided sometimes over the things of God. And the question then is, where do my priorities lie? See, the things of this world could refer to evil things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as First John puts it. But it could, again, also be everyday things. Because he says, things of this world and the worries of this life. And the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth is obvious. Do not love money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Paul says, similarly in that same passage, we came into this world with nothing. We taken nothing out. We might be dressed up nicely when we get put in a casket or, or whatever. But at the end of the day, you can't take anything with you. So there's no point in spending our lives loving that or cherishing that as if it's wonderful. We should give thanks for what God has given us and be good stewards. But I, in my short space of life within churches, I'm not applying this personally today, but believe me when I say this, and I know other people have shared with me too. You can start off in the name of stewardship, doing some good things, even with the title of Christian over it. But that can very easily and simply prove itself to be the love of comfort or some sort of fanciness as opposed to true godly stewardship. And over time, the, the love of our heart is proven. The priorities in our life are proven. What kind of soil we are is proven because Jesus says this, the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this life Again, could be good things. How are we going to pay these bills? How are we going to save for the future of our children? Um, how are we going to plan for these things in our, in our marriage, in our parenting? Good things. But they can be so consuming that you realize, I haven't thought about God in 10 hours. The one who's going to give me all of these things. And eventually, if our heart is not right with God, even though we can be in the midst of godliness and even involved in what looks like pursuing Christ he says this it'll be choked out and unfruitful so when we see the purpose of the parables and we see the meaning of the parables we, we also see at the end here of verse 23 the evidence of the good soil that's, that's what Jesus is saying we don't have the ability to give power to the word, which is the seed. We are not ultimately 
the great sower. Although somehow mysteriously, God actually sows his word through each and every one of us. And it is actually given to us, not just teachers and preachers, but us as Christians to be involved in sowing seed in our lives for those around us. But we don't give life, as Paul says, we don't give growth. That's God's business. But we should examine where our heart is at. And he says here in verse 23, the one who received the seed, received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. And understanding there is almost synonymous with believing. Who receives by believing. He understands it. He produces a crop. There's the key. There's the evidence that we can look back over our life even in the short term and ask these questions. Do I bear fruit? Does my life bear the fruit of the Spirit? Has anyone believed through me sharing or rejected through me sharing? Because again, our duty is to share the truth of God's Word. But am I persistent in doing this no matter the cost? It says, the one who received the word and understands it, he produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And I think that's helpful as well because Jesus is showing us it is our business to take the responsibility upon ourselves. It's our responsibility to examine our hearts and to leave whatever the yield of our fruits, our labor is, the fruits of our labor, is in God's hands. We should not expect that if I am equally faithful, at least in my own eyes, to a certain ministry or a certain task that God has called us to fulfill, we should not almost pridefully, I I would say, expect that because sister or brother so-and-so 20 years ago did the same thing and, well, 50 people got saved, it would be arrogant for any of us to say, well, I'm going to do the exact same thing and I expect that 20 people will be saved. That's not my business. That's not our business. That's God's business. Our business is to be faithful, sores, and to, with the Spirit's help, not just sow seed, but plow our hearts with the Word of God. As Jesus begins to teach these parables, this is what He's putting at the forefront of each of them. It begins and stands on how we receive the Word of God. The Scriptures give life, sustain our life as believers, and will keep us safe until glory. Amen, church? Amen. And so when Jesus begins, we, we see two twin truths at work. We see the ultimate faithfulness of God throughout the ages. Notice how Jesus just reaches back basically a thousand years to Isaiah's prophecy and says, I'm the fulfillment of this. But then he says, you have been, in verse 11, given, or it has been granted to you as a gracious gift to see these things. Are you a believer this morning? Well, praise God. That is a gift of sight that comes from heaven on high into your heart. 
You have been made good soil. That's the sovereignty of God. And our responsibility is to keep letting His work work itself out by being a person who continually, daily receives the Word, is shaped by the Word, and lets, lets Him basically, basically use us like His own hands to continue sowing into each other and into those who we come into contact with. And we need to behold God's sovereign faithfulness even in something as simple as a parable where Jesus shows us his patience has an end. His patience is reaching the end with these Pharisees who are rejecting him. And he now may as well be speaking Japanese to them because they cannot see. They don't want to see. They have done what he says is closing their eyes to him. It's a very sad thing. But that's between people who do that. It's between them and God. And it's, it, it's upon us to be like Christ, gracious and desiring that people's eyes would see the truth. Just like our eyes were graciously open. And to be faithful to God's word as he does the work of sowing and growing and reaping in his kingdom. It is a, a great gift an unspeakable privilege to be a part of the family of God. To be a part of this kingdom. It is layer upon layer of grace, the complete opposite of what we deserve. But this is the God we serve. Amen. He is worthy to be praised. So let us go to Him again in prayer and continue praising Him together. Would you bow with me in prayer?